The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm going to talk tonight about uh, the refuges. My guess is that some of you have a clue about what that is, and some of you don't. Um, and I'll talk for a while, and then there'll be some time at the very end for questions on any any aspect of the Dharma that you might have. But I'd also like to invite you to to uh, be more interactive during the course of, of my talking. If I'm saying something that sounds delusional, <laughs> um, you know, you can bring my attention back or, or ask for clarification or something like that. So please feel free. The notion of the refuges is um, at the very heart of the Buddhist, the Buddhist path. Um, often uh, people are, uh, they define their participation in, in, uh, on the Buddhist path in terms of taking refuge. In, and and there, are, there are three items of refuge that are, that are traditionally listed. Refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. And taking refuge in this sense is a um, refuge from what? You know, I, 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 it's ritually uh, done, this, is, this taking refuge is ritually done frequently at Dharma centers and monasteries. Uh, people often do it themselves, almost like a ritual repetition. I just like to think a little bit about what this, what this means um, for each of us. So it's not like I'm about to lay out uh, what the refuges mean, but I'm going to try to inspire some inquiry in your own mind, because in the end, really, if, if there is a refuge in the Buddha's path uh, for you, it's one that you will have to discover yourself. The Buddha said he taught only about suffering and the end of suffering. Actually, he used the word dukkha. People familiar with the word dukkha? You know, it's a, it's, it's a word that has such a broad range of meaning. Basically, it's about, being dis, it's about the dissatisfactions we experience in our life. And it, it includes the, the minor things as well as the major things. Um, it's not like, in, and in some ways, it's not like, uh, I mean, the translation of suffering is, is pretty, um, it's harsh, and you can think, well, you know, yeah, suffering some here and there, but it doesn't um, apply across the board to our lives. One Tibetan teacher says it's not, it's not like being stabbed, it's more like rubbing your elbow against a brick wall, slowly, for a long time, <laughs> you know. Um, the Buddha classically defines it as um, being with what you don't want to be with and not getting to be with what you want to be with. Not getting what you want and getting what you don't want, basically. We often think that it may not be, uh, I know for years I, I wasn't quite sure how it applied directly in my life. If you think that you are dukkha-free, or even relatively dukkha-free, um, just check in with your complaints. Because your complaints are all manifestations of dukkha. The world is the way it is, 
and we relate to it as we do. Um, Byron Katie says, if you argue with the way the world is, you'll lose, but only 100% of the time. It is the way it is, uh, and it's the starting point for anything we want to do. But we can identify our own dukkha when we start looking at, at some of the complaints we, we have about things small and large in our lives. Is there an end to them? I mean, really, you could sit down and make a list, and it, you could go on doing that for quite some time, probably. Um, so the question is, how do we deal with this dissatisfaction that we find in our experience? There are a lot of different ways that, we, that people act in order to find relief. And, you know, the common ways... You can um, distract yourself, you know. Um, I, I, what comes to my own mind is, a, is a, a time after a particularly horrible day at work um, that was just so particularly horrible, I wasn't sure whether I still had a job, and it was just, I went to a movie. You know, just distraction works. Or it is, it's an effort to, to find relief. You, can, you know, people uh, try anesthetic, you know, alcohol or, or drugs, or just drop into a, a TV show, or how do we find relief from the dissatisfaction in our lives? Each of us has a set of, of patterns and habits that we've built up um, that we use partly because, you know, uh, there are habits... <laughs> And each of us has our own different ways of doing it. Um, for the Buddha, um, or for, the, for people who follow the Buddhist path, the idea here would be that you would find refuge from this suffering, from this dissatisfaction, from the unsatisfactoriness of the world in, uh, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And that's usually the idea behind the ritual recitation of I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha, and usually it's spoken three times. And sometimes it's done in the, in the Pali language, which is the language in which the, uh, the earliest of the Buddhist texts are recorded. What, is, what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha? Um, who, just who was the Buddha? And, and what would it mean to take refuge in, uh, in the Buddha? You know, each of us has an understanding of who the Buddha was and what he accomplished. And for if for some of us it's just a newly acquired notion for some of us it may be something we've been contemplating for years so an understanding of what the buddha accomplished and who he was um, that's the 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 refuge of that is the idea that there is if if this is what you understand that there is some um, there is some refuge there is a place of safety, of relief, that can be found. That's what 
if, if that's how you understand what the Buddha did. Some people think of him as enlightened. You know, interestingly enough, I just discovered last week that uh, the word Buddha doesn't appear in the Pali texts at all. It's an honorific term that came, that came later. Um, it means awake, awakened. It comes from the Pali word bodhi, um, which means awake. So the Buddha was, and when, when he was first, you know, enlightenment, actually, uh, for years I thought that was, that was what the, the Buddha was enlightened. I didn't quite know what that was, uh, but I knew it had to be important, or I thought it had to be important. The word enlightenment is a translation of the word bodhi that was made by a 19th century uh, Christian uh, scholar who was discovering these texts and translating um, and so, you know, the word may be a bit muddy for you. you know, what what does it mean? What did the what awake to what? You know, there there are in the tradition, in the tradition as it comes to us through the the uh, Theravadan lineage. There are lots of mythology about the Buddha. And we've all heard about his story. You know, he was born a, a prince of some sort and his father protected him from all the suffering in the world. And when he discovered it, he had to go out and, and uh, find a resolution to the problem of, of old age sickness and death, which is on all of our dance cards. And the claim that he made is that he had solved that problem that he had come to an understanding, to a vision, to um, you know, to, just to resolve that problem for himself, and in passing on the teachings, which we'll come to in a minute, uh, he started the, the uh, rolling of the wheel of the Dharma, the teachings, the tradition that comes down to us today, based on an insight that he had into the nature of our own dissatisfaction. Exploring your notion of what the Buddha accomplished is a way to explore your own, uh, your own spirituality, to discover, look more deeply at what, what he might have found and how you would understand that. The Buddha actually, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I see the Buddha. I, I see the Buddha as, as a docent um, who's pointing out uh, aspects of you know, experience for me to notice. You know, uh, there, are, there are people who think the Buddha was omniscient and could read minds. I'm not particularly one of those. But those are options. I mean, people do have um, a range of ideas about who the Buddha was and what he accomplished. And so for you, you know, coming up with a sense of that will be a large part of, of the practice. What is, in fact, the refuge? What are we doing here? What is, what is the refuge that uh, the Buddha found? And how do we how do we relate to him? 
You know? I mean, some of his teachings are so incredibly radical. He says, for example, uh, let none despise any being in any state. Anybody there? <laughs> you know, I mean, th- there's all the people we have complaints about, which is probably just about everybody <laughs> in one level or another. You know. So, you know, we, I, I look at that and I think I've, got, I've still got work to do. Now, you might look at it and say, yeah, but the Buddha didn't know so-and-so. <laughs> so, you know, there, there, there are different uh, options here. But the idea is to, is to recognize in the Buddha's accomplishment the possibility of um, an end to the dissatisfaction that, that comes, that's coming along with life. That's that refuge, just the possibility. Refuge in the Dharma is is the refuge is the, the idea that there is something you can do, that something you can do. You know, the Dharma are generally regarded as the Buddha's teachings. The word Dharma has a huge or Dhamma in the Pali has a huge uh, variety of meanings, but in this case we're talking about the Buddha's teaching. So we're saying There's a refuge here because the Buddha left a map and some instructions. He left some practices. Um, There are a few things that that he brought to the table that are particularly, uh, that are unique to him. Uh, Some things like some of the, uh, you know, Indian metaphysical cosmologies he didn't invent. He lived in that world. The things he brought to the table, um, most important of his teachings is it's up to you, self-reliance. It's, it's, an, it's interesting, if in the West there's this underlying um, mythology of, of original sin in the, in the, in the theology. Um, somehow, and in that notion, somehow we are flawed because of, well, Snakes and apples, and you know, so whatever the mythology. But there is this sense that we're somehow flawed beings, and a lot of us, even though we may not have been raised, I mean, that's embedded, embedded in the culture in a lot of ways. So a lot of us have a very heavy-duty inner critic going. Anybody have one of those? You know, <laughs> right? But it's but even not within the church. You know, you can. You, it's, it's in the culture. And of course, in that situation, if you're flawed inherently, you need someone to save you because you're not capable of doing it yourself. In the East, the idea is a little bit different. We begin pure, but there are defilements that arise in the mind and, and delude us and distract us, and, but the, we can remove them. We can, we can overcome them. And it's something we have to do ourselves. We can't... There's no one else to do it for us. So self-reliance is really an important part of the Buddha's teaching. You take refuge in the Dharma, you're taking refuge in, your, in yourself. Um, he, also, he, also taught, he, also, he also taught mindfulness meditation. He found this kind of 
meditative practice that was different than what everybody else was doing at the time. Um, at the time, there were, there were a lot of skilled practitioners who could accomplish some very uh, powerful, concentrative states of absorption. And the Buddha mastered those fairly early on and decided that, you know, they were great while you were off in la-la land, but then when you opened your eyes, it's, it's the same old, same old. And so what he, what he, what he uh, discovered, what he uh, taught, was this mindfulness practice that we use where we, we practice bringing our attention to our, the experience as it presents itself to us and learn how to see it clearly. And when we see it clearly, he said, we would see, and he, so he's, he's laying out a map. But he's, but, you know, he's saying, you've got to take a look. Somebody once asked him, does everybody who you teach get enlightened? And he said, well, do you know how to find your way to Gaia, the city of Gaia? The guy said, yeah. He said, well, do you, if, if you gave instructions, would everybody get there? Well, only if they set out and, and went there. And the Buddha said the same, the same is here. So he said, if you look, you'll, you'll find that all your experience is impermanent, constantly changing, never stays, just doesn't, there's nothing that stays put. Sometimes this is called a, a, um, a characteristic, characteristic of existence. It's also characteristic of your experience. Is all of this subjective experience or objective? The Buddha would say it's the middle, the middle path. It's not, it's not either or. It's both. And you would find that this experience, this, this existence, is impermanent. There is nothing, there is nothing that stays put. Robert Rauschenberg, it's, uh, Robert Rauschenberg who's the, who's a 20th century painter, I guess he painted into the 21st century, used to say, you can't look at my paintings twice. Because, you, I mean, the paintings will be different, sure, on a molecular level, but you will be different. You will have seen it before. You know? So it's not, it won't be the same experience. Uh, the Greek philosopher Democritus said, "You can't step in the same river twice." You know, you, so there's nothing that stays put. In fact, if you if you if you think about it, they're really from the from the subatomic, what are quarks and pi mesons? Somebody here probably knows what they are. Oh, good. You know, they flash into and out of existence in trillionths of a second. You know, and then, it, and, and then you've got some things that last a bit longer, and we've got life forms that last days, weeks, human life. We've got redwoods that last forever. We've got planets and galaxies, and everything is embedded in everything. The biology that, that is keeping us alive is dependent on the biosphere, which is dependent on the relationship of, of the Earth to the Sun and the galaxy and the Big Bang. There's no, everything is embedded and everything is in process. 
It's not, there, in a way, there are no things anywhere. There's just process. There are things in language. And there, we have nouns, and we think of things. But, you know, this pen, the molecules that are in this were not a pen. You know, this is just a snapshot of this matter at this moment in time. And at some point, it's not going to be. So it's, it's just um, a constantly passing show. And it's not capable of providing satisfaction to us. This show is, itself is not capable of providing satisfaction. Because if it did, it would change immediately. If you got everything lined up perfectly, just the way you wanted it, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> you know, if you actually got what you want, <laughs> because it would immediately be different. So the Buddha laid this, he said, that's what you would see. You would see the dissatisfaction. You would see, you would see how it's built in as long as we are wishing things were different. We want things to, the pleasant stuff to stay, and we don't want the unpleasant stuff to, to show up. But we are not in control of that, unless somebody here is just getting the pleasant stuff, or you know, just the unpleasant stuff. It, it's sort of like the weather, you know, or like traffic. <laughs> you know, things can thicken up in the middle of the day almost anywhere. You know. So the Buddha laid out his his insight in what are referred to as the four the four noble truths, and um, understanding. The, these four truths, actually, uh, was listening to Stephen Batchelor last week. He said that he, he thinks of them as the four tasks. Because each of these uh, descriptions comes with, with something you're supposed to do. So the first of the noble, the noble truths is the, just the reality of dissatisfaction, how it's built in. And the task is to understand that. To understand... We don't, we don't like it. You don't have to like it. <laughs> but let's not delude ourselves about the possibility of you know, fixing, fixing things so that it isn't there anymore. You know. So understanding it, and understanding it in the subtle ways as well as the, in, the, in the larger grosser ways. Um, <clears throat> if you understood it fully, you would see the origin of it. And you would recognize the, or you would recognize the impulses that arise to try to make things stay and keep things away, complaining, resisting, clinging. You'd recognize them. And the, the, the sensation of dukkha is the sensation of that longing, that wanting, the wanting of it to be different, the thirsting of it. It's a particular kind of craving. You, you don't feel like you have control over it. You, you know, it's, uh, it's what you have to do. You, you know, you just need it. 
whatever it is. And it could you if on, and we usually say, you know, if only, if only I had another job or a job or if, or another partner or a partner or you know, smarter kids or healthier kids or you know, what unending list of things that we think would make our life better. And maybe, you know, get out ahead of, ahead of things. Um, but your understanding of the Buddha's path will determine uh, how, how your practice works. So the Buddha said that if you understood dukkha fully, you could be free of it. You would understand its origin and you would abandon it. So you abandon the impulses of of tanha, of, of craving. And you realize the cessation. The third truth is the possibility of cessation of, of this dissatisfaction. And the fourth truth is the, is the uh, way of living that is possible without, without dukkha. And it's it's one way of living. It's an eightfold path. It's called a path. I don't think I don't like to think of it as a path myself because a path is different from the goal. And there's 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 I'll talk a little bit about this quickly. Um, there there are different concepts in Buddhist circles about what the goal of practice is. Now there are there are and and I'm just going to present them as as they are out there, and you you know, work with them as as they appear. Uh, In the traditional teachings, what's brought by the the, uh, uh, monastics in the order, the Buddha achieved a transcendental experience. He, you know, he, the experience of Nibbana or Nirvana is the experience of realizing some transcendental state. And it goes along with a cosmology that includes multiple lifetimes and karma over, over multiple lifetimes. Special powers, psychic powers. Um, and, the, and, and it's embedded pretty much in the tradition, a lot of those notions. For some of us in the West, it's a, you know that kind of Indian metaphysic is a little hard to um, inhabit, and there are many practitioners who see the Buddha's accomplishment as a profound psychological transformation, one which enables one to be free from um, the suffering which comes from grasping and resisting. There's plenty of suffering, plenty of unpleasant experience without us having to add to it. And so the Buddha, my view is the Buddha learned how to not make things worse. Pretty good skill, actually. It's not a bad thing to uh, live a little bit happier and not make things worse. Um, and the Eightfold Path, or the Eightfold Way of Being, 
or a full way of living. It's it's all one unit. It's not like there are eight separate things and you can... It's not a one-fold path. You know, it's not just the meditation. It comes with understanding. Well, and it comes with with some behavioral elements too, some ethical practice, ethical behavior. So basically the Buddha says, pay attention correctly using mindfulness, mindfulness practice and some stability. Learn how to pay attention. Discover how things are. You know, see correctly and understand correctly. And then um, live your life in a way that does not add suffering for yourself or others. That's, you know, the Dharma, the Buddha's, the Buddha's description. And you can, you know, find there's a lot of material written about it, about the Buddha's teachings. My gosh, there's tons of books out there. You know, you they won't quit and you'll you'll find that there are these two different strains there's this western strain and there are people who who still like the the other stories these are for you but the idea here is the dharma as a refuge is the idea it's a refuge there is something you can do about this dissatisfaction and the last of the refuges is the refuge of the uh the, the Sangha. The word Sangha, um, that's just a great word. It's, it, it, means, it, it means community. Uh, and historically, it's, you know, and there are traditional people who, who claim that Sangha means the um, collection of fully enlightened beings. This is the Sangha. It was the Sangha after the Buddha's death who came together to um, preserve the teachings. These were the, there were 500 fully enlightened beings, and they came together. This was the Sangha, the fully awakened ones. When there, maybe there became fewer of them over time, but then Sangha, there are some people who, who uh, see Sangha as a word that applies to the monastic order. There's a, a wonderful Tibetan uh, monastery in the Santa Cruz Mountains um, near Boulder Creek, Vajrapani. Some of you may have been there. And in, at the food line, uh, there's a little sign that sits um, at the start of the line that says, out of courtesy, we serve Sangha first. And after Sangha is, um, in parentheses, you know, those in robes. So there are people who think Sangha is are the monastics. And then, you know, we use the term Sangha in meditation centers like this. This would be, you know, IMC, the Sangha at IMC, and the collection of people who come and practice together. Um, I guess the, the, the refuge here with Sangha is that there is some place to go <laughs> to... to uh, to help you do something about it. So the you know the first refuge is there is a refuge. There are some instructions. There's something you can do, and there's a place to go. Um, there's some people. I I tend to have a, a a bit of social enough social science in me to think of sangha as a 
culture of awakening. There are people who don't have access to, you know, interpersonal fellowship. You know, uh, my wife has a, a friend who lives right on the edge of the Australian outback. They've never met, but they correspond a lot, and she's very uh, committed to the pro- to the practice. She listens to Gill's talks and to the Dharma Seed talks and <clears throat> reads books, and you know, she's not even in in doesn't have an, another. Uh, person to talk to, you know. But there's community on the internet, you know. So I think, and and their books, their artifacts. So I think of I think of sangha as the culture of awakening. It's the resources and the people that that support. Uh, your effort to to awaken and come to the end of come to the end of, of practice. So it could include someone who's just read one book, who has some interesting thoughts about it. Let me just conclude with a with a, a uh, you know the the taking refuge in this sense when it's done ritually I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma and in the Sangha. This includes everything about the practice. It includes your understanding of the goal. It, underst- it includes your how much you understand and are, are committed to the particular practices and teachings and your involvement with others. There isn't a right or a wrong here. Um, just speaking the words are not... Um, it's, it has to do with your inner intention. So recounting the, the refuges, possibly uh, some people do them on a daily basis or you know, in, a, in a communal uh, gathering of some sort, but it's a mindfulness practice in the sense that it encourages us to reflect on just what we're doing. And, and uh, to use that reflection for our own insight. So the refuges are are taken to be, when you find yourself going to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, in other words, to what you think the Buddha accomplished and your, pra- and your practice of that, that's, that's um, the condition of being on the, on the Buddha's path. So let me just, uh, and, and it's, so um, let's, let's just take a second, or minute, and contemplate, just for ourselves, the thought of taking refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha. How would that feel in your own mind? How does that understanding work for you, guide you. Take refuge in the Buddha. In what sense can the Buddha's experience, as you understand it, be a navigational tool? I take refuge in the Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha. Depending on your understanding of the teachings, some people are new to them, 
and just beginning to study them. Some people have been working with them for a long time. Your own understanding of the teachings. In what way do they provide a refuge from the dissatisfactions? You have an understanding of how that might work. How does that understanding play out for you? And taking refuge in the Sangha, in the culture which helps you find your way, helps you find your way to awakening. That little contemplation, you can do at almost any time. So let me just ask about uh, questions, puzzlements, on this or, or any other Dharma topic, um, just to provide an opportunity for some inquiry. Where was Stephen Bachelor? Where was Stephen Bachelor? He was, uh, well, his wife was here last week. He was at Spirit Rock on that Saturday, and then he, he did a week-long retreat. Um, and I, I, will, I recommend the talks from that retreat very highly. I tend to fall on the side of seeing the Buddha's accomplishment as being a profound psychological transformation rather than having attained something otherworldly because I'm not sure what that means myself. And Stephen did a series of, uh, he did a a retreat with a series of talks titled Towards a Secular Buddhism. And the talks are available on Dharma Seed, and they're available to anyone, dharmaseed.org. And uh, when you get to the page, there's several you pick teachers, and then you find Stephen Bachelor. It's alphabetized by first name, so you got to go to S. And the last five of his talks were the talks from that retreat. Very powerful, very contemporary. Um, you know, there are, is some in, increasing uh, thought about... Buddhism that's not tied into Indian metaphysics. There's a book, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. Well, it's very, he, he pointed, he was the guy who pointed out that uh, the word Buddha doesn't appear in the Pali Canon. And uh, so he refers, to, he refers to him as Mr. Gautama. <laughs> Just a guy. Please. Are, are there different ways that the different traditions um, go about the three refuges, like the Mahayana and Theravada traditions about? Mm. There, there are different practices. Um, the, in the Theravadan tradition, which is really what I know, uh, we recall the refuges and recite them, usually... Um, during at, at retreats and, and other major events, uh, they can, they're done ritually. Um, I can't really speak about how the Zen people do it or the the Tibetans, but they are they all 
um, recognize what they call the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And uh, so I'm not sure how their rituals play out. Basically, in our tradition, we just chant the Pali text or the, or the English text. Um, yeah, I've seen some, like the Chinese tradition, they have a lot more ceremony involved mm-hmm. with it and the naming process with the people doing the refuges. Right. There's a, and there's a tendency to get confused out there because there's a lot of variation and people, there's no truth in labeling in spiritual practice. So people don't identify, you know. And often people are confused and muddy themselves in, in understanding. And I found that trying to clarify has, has been a very powerful practice for me. Um, for example, you know, the. I spent years thinking of Nibbana as described as the unconditioned. So I couldn't figure out what that would mean. If it's unconditioned, it means it never changes. It's always present. If it's always present, how come I, oh, well, I don't see it because of the defilements. But it's not, how do you, you know, just a lot of confusion about where was it, if it existed, you know. Um, and then I came across uh, teaching in in the in the scriptures where the Buddha said, by the unconditioned, I mean unconditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. Well, that made it a lot easier. <laughs> you know, the, the relief, the, 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 the uh, resolution of, of dukkha comes with uh, no longer being conditioned by our greed, our aversion, and our lack of understanding of how things are. So I found clarification really helpful. Um, and there are the different traditions approach in different ways. You know, the Buddha said, you're the one who has to, you know, be an island unto yourself. His last words, be an island or um, be a lamp unto yourself. The word, the Pali word, dipa, can be translated either as island or lamp. There's both, both are actually... They're not t- entirely different meanings. But you're the one who has to wake up for yourself. And so the, the teachings, take the teachings that help you wake up. You know, and, and be the judge. You know, the Buddha said to the Kalamas, don't go by, by tradition, don't go by, this is your teacher, this is what your teacher says, don't go by scriptures. Don't even go by logic, but when you know in your heart that what you're about to do will be for the benefit of yourself or others, do it. And when you know in your heart that the intention is not for the benefit of yourself or others, refrain. And it's not a direct knowing. So, you know, to look to yourself. So I, I, I've had to deal with issues, I mean, the issues of multiple lifetimes. I don't have any recollections of multiple lifetimes. But you always hear of somebody who has. (laughs) So are you supposed to believe in that or not? Well, you know, you can do what you want. um, But keep clear whether, if if you... you, um, 
operate in terms of that kind of paradigm, keep clear where your knowledge about it is rooted. Buddha was not really hugely into consolation. His last words, all compounded things are subject to arising and passing away. All things are impermanent. Strive on. This is an amazing, I mean, just awareness is amazing that it exists at all. Anything, anything else? I thank you for your attention.